Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, while you were off researching, vacationing, who knows where you are and I what you I love that do. those are the, those, <laughs> it's not only that those are the only two options, that I think those are equivalent in your mind. Well, our global brand has been burgeoning. Oh, <laughs> that's good. That's good. Yeah. I was, um, I was actually just reading an article about Jimmy Buffett and thinking we could really learn something from him. Well, I've got even better for you than Cheeseburger in Paradise. You and I are the subjects of a Jonathan Chait article. (laughs) It actually, really, that just makes me want to throw up. So set the the stage for our listeners. You and I wrote an op-ed. What was it? What were we arguing? In a nutshell, the Democrats are in a really bad position uh, because of their education policy. They're not just getting attacked from the right uh, as a result of the culture war that's been unfolding for the past several years. But they are increasingly finding themselves um, alienating their affluent, upper-middle-class, highly educated white supporters uh, because of the equity agenda as it has manifested in schools, right? That as the party has moved away from that Clinton-Obama consensus around education, which really embraced the idea of meritocracy, that you um, should climb a ladder to opportunity, uh, as Obama would say, and that if you're not doing well, uh, you have only yourself to blame, right? Because you earn what you learn, to use Clinton's phrase. That that's a loser of a message as inequality has widened. Uh, and um, so the party has begun to move away from that. But meanwhile, um, there's an entire generation of Democrats who have fully bought into that and who now feel really alienated by some of these equity efforts that we've seen in places like California with the new um, approach to teaching calculus or the fights over selective high schools, not just in California and San Francisco, but also uh, in Boston in New York, um, that, uh, that the party really doesn't have a clear message on education, something that we've said many times before. Um, and that is increasingly going to be a problem uh, because Republicans realize it. Well, I don't think it'll surprise you in the least to learn that Jonathan Chait does not agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I, that actually makes me feel really good about myself. I'm, that's, I'm not going to read anything else. That's, I'm good. I'm good to go now. Well, our episode today is about the culture war part of what Jack has just been describing. And we have a guest on who is, I am a huge fan of. His name is Jeff Charlotte. He's a writer and commentator. And I think he's one of the sharpest observers of politics and culture who I know. And this episode was inspired by something I saw him tweeting about. And Jack, I'm actually going to read you the tweet because I just want to see how you respond. When you ask yourself what you can do for Ukraine, yes, donate if you can, get informed, but not just there, here. Your school board is part of the struggle too. U.S. states are copying Putin's anti-LGBTQ plus laws. 
that won't be all they copy. Uh, that mean that's, on the one hand, bold claim. <laughs> bold claim. Um, but on the other, right, I mean, it, it's a, a pattern that we have absolutely seen um, politically where, you know, things that work in one place to, you know, alienate people to the extent that they actually show up to vote against whatever it is they've been convinced to hate um, gets tried as a strategy elsewhere. Look at Alec's success with model legislation, right? This is the American Legislative Exchange Council where, you know, if they find that uh, a bill in Arkansas um, passes and ends up, you know, rallying the base, why wouldn't it work in Oklahoma or Arizona or Florida or Michigan? That's exactly what Jeff is going to be arguing. He really makes the case that we need to think bigger than that. This is a global moment and that that's what makes it so disturbing. And so I thought it would be really interesting to have him come on and and really, you know, lay out for us that there is this connection between what's happening in Texas or Tallahassee and what's going on in Kiev. Are you impressed by my pronunciation? Uh, yes, yes. Although it's been helped by the fact that we spell that place differently than we used to be K-I-E-V. Uh, so, you know, you got a little help there. Now to our guest, Jeff Charlotte is one of my favorite writers. He's the author of a book called The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, which was adapted as a Netflix series. And his most recent book, This Brilliant Darkness, A Book of Strangers, really defies description. So I'm just going to tell you to read it. His deeply immersive style of reporting has taken him all over the world, including to Russia. In 2014, he published a remarkable piece of journalism for GQ called Inside the Iron Closet about being gay in Russia. And when he started hearing about a wave of new laws being passed in this country, it all felt a little too familiar. The laws that we're seeing passed now were passed in Russia in 2013. When I went to Russia to report on Putin's anti-LGBTQ crusade, a lot of American liberals assumed that Russia must always have been backward. And the same earlier, I had reported on even more venomous so-called kill the gays bill in Uganda. Same thing. American liberals assumed those countries were just backward. That's not actually the case. In fact, those countries had made tremendous progress. Russia was enjoying a, a, a kind of queer renaissance in the early 2000s. It was not an issue for Putin during his first two terms. Remember, Putin was elected to the presidency twice. Then he had to take a time out where he was premier and he ruled through a, a kind of a proxy. And then in 2012, he came back. And one of the first projects he did on his third term was he started creating a new enemy within. And suddenly the very queer people who had not been an issue for him at all were a deep, deep threat to the nation. To make sense of how a state like Florida can end up enacting legislation that is in many ways eerily similar to Russia's banning of the quote-unquote promotion of homosexuality, Jeff says we have to understand the political project that's at work here. So they passed a law that said the anti-promotion of homosexuality. And again, it was all about protecting the children. What's different about these laws is they don't outlaw homosexuality. Homosexuality was outlawed in the Soviet Union. And they are proud of having gotten rid of that law. 
They say, you can do what you want as long as you don't, they're closet laws and they're political control laws, which are actually more useful for a political project. The better parallel in the past of Russia, and I think this is useful in the American context too, there was something called uh, Article 70 in the old Soviet Union. And that was against any kind of anti-Soviet propaganda, deliberately undefined. So just like we saw with critical race theory, why are these bills so vague? Why is it don't say gay bill? And if you read it, it's insane that the language of it. Why is it so vague? Because it's the idea of using the threat of queerness as a justification for tr- controlling an even vaster array of speech. That happened in Russia, and I saw it, how it worked firsthand in 2013, and it's happening here now. It can be hard to keep up with the sheer level of awfulness that's coming out of states like Texas and Florida right now. First, they were after trans athletes, then trans kids, then seemingly any kids who identify as LGBTQ. Jeff says that while the focus of these laws may keep shifting, the purpose is always the same, social control. The way I think of these laws abroad and here as a kind of gender nationalism, and I think this is really important that people understand that these laws are a direct threat to queer folks, to trans kids, but they are a threat to everybody and they're designed to be a threat to everybody. You don't oppose them because you feel altruistic and you want to be a good ally. You oppose them because they're a gun aimed at you, whoever you are. These are laws of social control. What's interesting is that in the walk up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Putin again amped up his crusade against queer organizations in Russia and started shutting them down and making a big story about this, that the masculine Russian identity is being threatened. That was part of the drumbeat to war. Same way in the United States, it's make America great again. You can't make America great again if they're talking about homosexuality in schools. Which brings us back to what is really the theme of this episode, that direct line connecting what's happening in Texas or Tallahassee with what's going on in Russia. And it can be summed up in three words, an enemy within. It's normalizing the idea of surveillance and fear and the idea that there is an enemy within. And even now, even though we've seen a revival of sort of anti-communist rhetoric in the United States, it's not the same as it was during the first Cold War, where it was important to have an enemy within who could be anybody. They look just like us. And so to a certain extent, right, we use immigrants in that regard in the United States. But they don't work because for the far right, they think they can always spot an immigrant because they know what color they are, right? So you need someone who is invisible could be anybody, even a teacher at your kid's school. You never know. Be on constant lookout. And this justifies a strong hand. We need a strong hand because we are threatened from within. Since I started working on this episode, there's been a wave of writing and reporting on Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill. Like a growing number of laws, this one encourages aggrieved parents to sue school districts. But regardless of how many suits actually get filed, the chilling effect on what happens in schools is likely to be profound. That's because for teachers, the fear of being made the target of what UCLA law professor John Michaels calls the grievance industrial complex is going to be intense. Are you really going to risk ending up on Tucker Carlson and accused of quote-unquote grooming kids? Better to just shut up. 
Jeff says that's exactly how these laws are supposed to work. But it isn't just teachers who are being put on notice here. It's everyone. A way of thinking about this that I think makes it sort of clear. So, right, there's always the reporting. And, of course, it's going to be abused. It will absolutely be abused. And it'll be it'll work to silence people. I mean, there's not going to be a lot of prosecutions. There never are wherever these laws are are passed because people shut up. Um, People will say, I'm not going to take a chance just with the anti-CRT laws. But a way to understand this is when we think about checkpoints, immigration checkpoints on the highways, pay attention to what's happening there, right? It's not only undocumented people who are being stopped. Everybody gets stopped. The policing message is for everybody. It's a message that whoever you are, We have the power to stop, demand your papers. You have no natural right to be here. That's the same idea. This is a law that is targeted at at most is going to hurt trans people and queer people the most. But it's saying to everybody, at any time, we will decide what you have a right to say. Okay, so Jack, I want to bring you back in here. This will come as no surprise to our listeners. There's some history here. I want you to tell us about Anita Bryant, a name that was really big for a while and now has kind of been lost to the fog of history. Fill us in. Anita Bryant was a former beauty queen, a singer, a born-again Christian, and a resident of Miami when, in the late 1970s, a gay rights ordinance passed. Right, This was just making sure that gay people in Miami couldn't be discriminated against in things like housing. And Bryant was outraged. She claimed that it was a violation of her rights and began organizing a ballot initiative, uh, which did eventually successfully overturn that gay rights ordinance. And uh, she started an organization called Save Our Children. And the messaging there um, you know, deeply offensive to us now as well as then was that homosexuals cannot reproduce, so they must recruit. And that turned out to be political gold uh, that, you know, not only did they win that ballot initiative, but um, that was used as the model for defeating gay rights in other states. Um, And, you know, soon there was thinking that this could be a part of a broader culture war message that goes beyond limiting the rights or, or rolling back the rights of gay and lesbian people. It could be used to, you know, pry votes away from the Democratic Party, for instance, through a culture war or uh, to rally the base among, you know, the far right or the religious right. I'm thinking about something that Jeff Charlotte told me in our conversation that, you know, that we have a tendency to see history as this sort of just, you know, like this, it's always progressing, right? And I think a lot of us viewed the cause of gay and lesbian rights that way, that this stuff that you're describing, this Anita Bryant crusade was long in the past. And yet here we are today and it all feels so familiar. Yeah, yeah. I I think that one way of thinking about it is that there's a macro story, right? That the bigger story, if you zoom way out and you don't see any of the the variants, it is one of progress, right? This is a story of social progress where a deeply marginalized community over a long time, right? We can go, you know, much further back than let's say Stonewall. Um, go back into the 19th century, uh, this group becomes very much incorporated 
into America. This group gains rights. The group actually becomes larger and better defined, right? We don't talk just about the gay community now. We talk about the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and there's more room every day for this community. But that's not to say that each single day is better than the last, because within that macro story, there are these recursions, right? There are setbacks, um, there are, uh, you know, these efforts to, to peel back rights that have been hard won. And so we're absolutely seeing that today. And much of it is motivated by uh, politics, right? Much of it is motivated by a desire to villainize a particular group out of political expediency. And it just happens to be particularly effective if that group remains marginalized enough that they can't push back in the same way as their more mainstream counterparts, right? It's always a lot easier to punch down. And so that's one of the reasons why we see marginalized groups winning rights for themselves steadily over time, largely through their own activism, but also alongside allies, um, but then also always being at risk of having those rights and those privileges uh, repealed. Back to Jeff Charlotte, one of the points that he makes is that despite the intense preoccupation on the right these days with what's being taught and talked about in schools, education is really just a means to an end here. Tapping into, say, parent grievances turns out to be a highly effective way of drawing a lot of people into what is essentially a political organizing project. They understand that this is just the most effective organizing principle. This is something that so many people have a connection to and feel like they have a say in. You know, you look at that Florida bill. You know, I was just reading it this morning and it goes so much further than like what the coverage is talking about. This, this sort of almost weird, nasty prose poem of clauses trying to cover every which way a parent might feel offended because every way they can do that can draw more people into this larger authoritarian project. And the project ultimately in Florida and Texas and Hungary and Russia is the idea of the illiberal state. What Viktor Orban in Hungary has said specifically, and he's gone, I think, further than any in terms of his control of education. The idea is to be an illiberal state. In my obsessive reading about the bills that are coming out of Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Arizona, Wisconsin, you get the point, I keep noticing a familiar theme. Whatever the specific target, advocates of the parents' rights cause keep returning to a central grievance. The schools are undermining the family. Jeff says that they have a very specific definition of family in mind, and that in many ways, they're right. Schools are undermining it. Well, you have to ask yourself, what do you mean by family, right? When they talk about the family, what they're talking about is a particular kind of authoritarian model, right? And they're absolutely right. Education undermines it. When they say education undermines that family, it does. It does. And, you know, I mean, I, I see this in my, my kids' own schooling, not undermining my family, uh, thank God. But, I, you know, they tell me kids who come to school with some really frightening ideas and then find them challenged, you know, like there's lots of kids now who are coming from intolerant homes, but they're like, my classmate says that they should be identified as they, them. And actually I see no problem with that. Right. Well, that's undermined that authoritarian family rule. It does. 
Indulge me for a moment as I read aloud to you from a book that I recently added to my collection. It's called Blackboard Tyranny, and the cover features an apple from which a snake is emerging. Quote, prayer is out, comic books, and Mao are in. Is it any wonder parents are upset about the, quote, education their kids are getting? These days, the schools teach everything from transcendental meditation to barnyard sex. Everything except the basics. End quote. The year, dear listener, was 1978. In other words, what's happening now is nothing new. Except that there is something different this time around. I think it can be tempting, especially for education activists, to sort of say, like, this is always happening. And, you know, you kind of just got to be monitoring it. And that may be the case. What hasn't always been happening and why it's important to think of the global context is this is a global fascist moment. And where these groups are aligned, they're sharing information, they're sharing bills, and they're also sharing a sense of possibility. And I know no one likes to use this word with the right, but imagination. They are imagining, hey, maybe instead of just sort of chipping away at public schools, maybe we could take off great big pieces of it. We really could do incredible damage and maybe even bring the whole thing back. Way back at the beginning of this episode, I read aloud a tweet from Jeff Charlotte in which he made the provocative claim that what's happening in Texas or Tallahassee is connected to what's happening in Kiev. Well, he meant it. And he says we have to view the most local of battles, like those raging around local school boards, in a global context. The fact is that because it's this sort of global fascist moment and because fascists everywhere are taking inspiration from one another, and I, and I almost sort of guarantee that your local right-wing activists, well, they've been watching Tucker Carlson. They watched Tucker Carlson do a whole week from Hungary with Viktor Orban, right, and describe this as the model. So they are sort of saying, okay, this is, these things are connected. And then they go and they, they fight their local school board. That's where the front line is. You know, that's where the front line of this struggle is. They are trying to bring to your school board ideas that they're learning about from a a Russian philosopher named Alexander Dugan by way of Putin, right? Or or maybe directly from Dugan himself, because he's showing up on Steve Bannon's podcast. That's where the front line is. And it's where you can do something. You can send money to Ukraine. And if you're able to, I think you should. But the biggest way we can help Ukraine is by having a non-authoritarian state here. So what can we do? Jeff says part of understanding our current moment is paying more attention to what people on the right, including the far right, are actually saying. For example, it's only because my husband has the fortitude to occasionally listen to Steve Bannon's podcast that I know that Bannon and his guests from groups like Moms for Liberty talk about schools constantly. They see the school wars as exactly the opportunity for the kind of organizing that Jeff has been talking about. But I don't know a single person in my vast education universe who listens to Bannon's show. Jeff says that Bannon or YouTuber Tim Pool speak to vast audiences, and we ignore them at our peril. These figures, any one of them, dwarf the New York Times and the Washington Post combined. I have over here a stack of books I just ordered, books that are selling huge numbers of copies, self-published. They are explicitly fascist novels. The novel that literary people are talking about, that's not the book that's out there. When Lauren Boebert appeared in a congressional Zoom and behind her were crisscrossed rifles and then on our shelf were just multiple copies of a book called Dressed to Kill. 
and people made fun of it. And I'm like, why don't you find out what it is? In addition to his reporting, Jeff also teaches writing at Dartmouth College. He lives in one of the only school districts in the country that crosses state lines. He's on the Vermont side. Across the Connecticut River is the New Hampshire side of the district. And as you know from listening to this school, New Hampshire has been an epicenter for just the kind of extreme politics that Jeff has been describing. We did just have an election. There was three candidates, three anti-trans candidates. The good news is we defeated them. We had record turnout. I think something like two or three hundred percent turnout and defeated them soundly. The bad news is they're going to keep pressing legally with a state legislature, which is very sympathetic to what they're doing. And I'll just speak from my own. My eldest is non-binary student, and this is terrorized. And they have school staff who are really important to them and making it a really wonderful, safe, queer space for them. And those people are recognizing that these bills, these initiatives are targeted at their jobs. The goal is to either shut them up or fire them. And, you know, I gave the example before of kids who are coming from sort of maybe reactionary homes and then I'm learning about how to use pronouns and queer identity and so on. That's exactly what this is about. And some of those kids are then saying, hey, wait a minute, this maybe is me. And in my school LGBTQ club, I can talk about that. And if I go home, I'm going to get beaten. You know, what they are explicitly pressing for is for those parents who would do that violence to be notified. Or better yet, for the kid just to shut up. That was Jeff Charlotte. His most recent book is called This Brilliant Darkness, A Book of Strangers. He's also a great person to follow on Twitter if you're looking for insights about our current chaos. You can find him at Jeff Charlotte. That's S-H-A-R-L-E-T. And Jack and I will be right back. And I've got great news. I've put him in charge of selecting the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. So I'm predicting a bit more enthusiasm for this task than usual. That topic, by the way, is the great teacher exodus. Is it happening or not? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcasts to become a supporter. So, Jack, I want to go back to what you were telling us about earlier. You gave us, uh, I thought, a fascinating glimpse at what happened in the 70s with Anita Bryant and this effort to push back the cause of gay rights and, and really, you know, using language that to us now just sounds, it sounds so extreme. Um, but I, I realized as I was listening to you describe that, that you didn't tell us how that story ended. And I'm assuming something must have happened to that movement because we do have gay and lesbian teachers in our schools. The number of kids who identify as LGBTQ plus is higher than at any time in history. And they're far more likely to be accepting of, you know, their peers or their relatives who identify similarly. So clearly, you know, Anita Bryant lost that, that war, even if she won that battle. So we need, I think, you know what I'm getting at. We need just a tiny glimpse of sunshine. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I think there there is a ray of sunshine here. I don't want to be too sunny um, because in reality, 
a lot of teachers were hounded out of their jobs, uh, not just teachers, right? I mean, we're an education podcast, so that's what my focus is on. But lots of people had their careers ruined, had their lives totally upended um, by this slanderous claim that, you know, gay and lesbian people, that the community we now refer to as the LGBTQ plus community, that they were seeking to do harm to children, that they were, you know, brainwashing people, that they were doing anything other than trying to lead their lives with dignity. Um, that did a lot of damage. But, you know, I think the hopeful piece here and the positive story here is that, you know, that's a community that really fought back. Um, it's it's not unlike lots of other stories we see about marginalized communities coming together, often in direct response to the kinds of worst abuses and infringements upon their rights. Um, that you know, gay pride in many ways comes out of the attacks on that community. Um, it's a direct pushback against attempts at silencing or erasing that community. And, you know, particularly in response to the AIDS crisis, we see um, that movement grow into something that really brings the entire community out of the shadows into American life. And eventually, um, you know, what people begin to realize is that they have uh, gay and lesbian sons and daughters. Um, they're my friends. They're my coworkers. Um, and, you know, that's a barrier that something like race continues to run up against, uh, that, you know, many of us don't have mixed race families. And because of our deeply segregated society, many of us don't live in integrated neighborhoods. Um, so there were certainly some advantages for the LGBTQ plus movement, um, but also the same kind of, you know, courageous push for rights and for dignity that we see in other social movements. Well, Jack, you did actually make me feel a little bit better. You brought a little sunshine there. So I'd like to return the favor. Uh-oh, he's looking nervous. Yeah, yeah. This, this is going to be the, the paywall thing, I think. Well, I thought as a special treat, I would let you pick the topic for our In the Weeds segment. And that's where we venture into an area that we call the weeds and we hold forth on some topic that's of interest particularly to me. But today, Jack is going to be selecting the topic. What will we be talking about, sir? <laughs> um... We are going to be talking about the importance of, uh, of not marketizing everything uh, and not exposing everything uh, to um, the, the rapacious claws of capitalism. Uh, that's, that's the topic I'm going with. Does that work for you, Jennifer? No, it does not. <laughs> try, try again. <laughs> well, I, I do have another idea, um, which maybe we could talk about in the weeds. Uh, so I think a lot of people have been hearing, you've reported on this actually, uh, about teachers saying that they're thinking about quitting, right? Higher numbers than we've seen in a long, long time. And I think the most common response, at least the, the one that annoys me the most, I don't know if that makes it the most common, it makes it seem like it's everywhere, is a kind of nyan-nyan response where uh, people are saying, yeah, but look, the numbers don't bear that out, right? These are 
these are people who often like to point to quantitative data and then make really strong certain claims about things. And the, the certain claim they're making is that this isn't real, this is just teachers complaining. And I think there's a very real problem here, even if teachers stay in classrooms, and, and that is that a big part of teacher pay, as I've said before on this show, is the psychic reward of feeling like you're doing good work, of doing work that feels important and that feels inherently valuable. And if teachers are reporting that they want to quit, I think what they're telling us is that that psychic pay that they get from the job is gone. Um, that's equivalent to a massive pay cut. And I think that if you cut people's pay significantly and they don't leave, that's going to really damage the kind of work that they do. Um, and so I think maybe we could talk through that and see if if there's a there there. Well, judging from the palpable excitement in your voice, it's going to be an interesting <laughs> conversation. So listeners, if this appeals to you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a couple dollars our way each month. We do a custom reading list for each episode and you get to hear Jack expound at some length on the, on the psychic pay cut for teachers. And if that sounds good to you, uh, we want to suggest that you consider our Have You Heard branded vodka, uh, as well as uh, Have You Heardville, which is a planned community that you can move to. Uh, phase A is opening soon. Um, so while you're waiting for that, uh, just make sure to do the usual stuff to support the show. We do want to grow our listener base so we can move on to phase B and phase C of our planned community. Um, so go on, give us a rating wherever you find us. That helps people find the show. Um, make sure that you're a subscriber so that whenever a new episode is out, it shows up in your device. Um, we love hearing from you as long as you're saying nice things to us. Uh, so drop us a line via the Have You Heard mailbag. You can go to our website, haveyouheardpodcast.com to get the information that you need for that. And we've got a Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. Again, nice comments only, please. It's uh, Jennifer and I just wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. So we're, um, we're getting all of the critical feedback that we really need right now. <sighs> Jack, I can't wait till you and I move together to have you heardville. Are we really going to be living in side-by-side -side townhouses? 